the prospective returns from these levels are going to be very anemic. And GMO came out with its latest uh, uh, seven-year asset class forecast. They've got negative returns uh, after inflation projected over the next seven years for, for large and small U.S. cap stocks. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Uh, I am here joined by the lead partners at New Harbor Financial, one of the endorsed financial advisory partners by Wealthion. They join me every week on this program. Uh, John and Mike, uh, sad start to the, the video here today. Uh, we're going to mark the passing, uh, I think, of a true great uh, of investing, um, Sam Zell. Uh, Sam, uh, American uh, billionaire, real estate investor, um, child of immigrants, uh, got a scrappy start uh, running a 15-unit uh, you know, real estate uh, complex, uh, getting to live in one of the units for free for being the property manager, uh, went from those early days to get his law degree and then uh, create his own real estate investing company. And, and literally the rest is history. But Sam was one of those great voices of reality out there, you know, when when the, the markets uh, have been caught up in, in one of the many uh, manias that they've they've been engaged in over the past several decades. Uh, Sam was always sort of the one out there just sort of uh, speaking truth uh, into the euphoria, um, tended to invest ahead of the, the masses uh, at key turning points. Obviously, that strategy worked out really well for him. I just feel like we lost a big voice of reason here. Uh, I've got a couple of um, key insights from uh, one of the last interviews he gave. I want to dig into those in just a second, but um, John, maybe let me just let you react uh, real quickly to the the news of Sam's passing. If there's anything else in general you want to add before I dig into the details here, well, yeah, it's obviously a uh, big news in the investment world. He's he's a legend uh, uh, and and rightly deserved. And you know, from his humble roots, that's always a great story to hear. Um, look, we're we're in one of the most um, complex times in financial markets and economic history. We think, and the data and the charts bear that out. So anytime you lose someone who's who's navigated through many market cycles and has that perspective, it, it's a it's a lesser uh, lesser world uh, because we do need uh, perspective to 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 kind of um, decipher where we are. And, and uh, so you know we share the the, the morning of the, of the the broad community, um, but uh, he he left his mark. That's a, a legacy he he has done. Okay, and Mike, I'll let you chime in too. John, you just mentioned you know some some charts. Uh, I know you and Mike have a a lot of charts that we're going to walk through today. Uh, some of the things that Sam said in this most recent interview, I think, really tee up your charts nicely. So I'll get to them in just a second. But Mike, just again, anything you want to add? John's commentary there. Just a couple words. I, I read the, the news on Twitter just uh, maybe an hour or so ago, and just want to express our con condolences to Sam Zell's family and friends. That's really sad news. Very sorry to hear it. Okay. All right. Well, like I said, Sam made his, his fortune in real estate. Um, some of these uh, comments from his recent interview are about real estate, but then then it goes a little bit more macro than that. Um, uh, he says that the, he, he doesn't think that there's been much opportunity that's been created in real estate for a long time. Um, and that's because uh, the world real estate market just got very used to these trends of declining interest rates and declining inflation, right? I mean, that was sort of the trend for the past number of decades, sort of a rising tide that that rose all boats, whether the boats were very good or not. Um, obviously, the key, you know, 
thing that's different today is is we have neither of those in place now, right? You know, now we have rising interest rates and rising inflation. Um, leading up to this point, as 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 things were just going according to status quo, Sam was actually a big seller of real estate. I don't think I appreciated what a big seller of real estate he was. Uh, he said that they've been a net seller for the past seven to eight years because they just can't justify the valuations that people were willing to pay for real estate. He talked about how he took over a public REIT uh, called Commonwealth six years ago that had $12 billion worth of assets. Over the past six years, he said it, he took the 145 assets that were in the Commonwealth Fund uh, when he bought it. They sold out of 141 of those assets, right? I mean, they, like that's how extreme he thought valuations had got to, and you know why it was sort of time to exit and get out. So he, he got rid of 141 of the 145 assets that that REIT had. Um, the uh, you know obviously in the real estate, uh, it's 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 uh, there's a lot changing there. The cost of capitals doubled basically in the past two years. Prices are beginning to weaken. He says anybody who's sitting on an adjustable rate loan in that space uh, is in a world of hurt right now going forward. Um, he thinks that there's a lot of things that have changed. Obviously, office space. He's like, look, I have no idea what office space is worth in a in a post work from home world. But he's like, I don't want to be the bag holder to find out what that price is. You know, <laughs> just get out of those things right now. So his key thing on real estate was he says that um, the opportunities they get created in real estate are when the regulators force everyone to mark to market. And he says that hasn't happened, you know, for a long time. And a great example of that is um, these uh, non-traded REITs that are pretty prevalent out there right now. One that's been in the headlines a lot has been Blackstone, right? So he said everything goes fine with a non-traded REIT, you know, when the cash flows are coming in, uh, the capital flows are coming in. Um, because, you know, everyone's happy to be in the fund. The fund doesn't have to mark to market. So your statements every quarter, you know, don't change or they go up as more money comes in. So everyone feels great. When people start getting nervous and the capital wants to start coming out, you know, then the funds are able to do things uh, like gate outflows, right? Which is exactly what's happened uh, with Blackstone right now. So they, they they tend to be really deceptive. They paint an un... un uh, you know, irrationally uh, or or un, uh, you know whatever. It's not it's not an untruthfully rosy picture of what's going on. And then when people start you know beginning to worry, uh, there's all sorts of controls that can keep the capital stuck in that space. And then of course, if the fund is forced to mark to market, you're kind of trapped in it uh, and have to ride that elevator down. So Sam talked about how um, there were two big periods in his investing career in the early '70s and the early '90s. Uh, when the environment was forced to mark to market. And that's when you could step in and buy assets at true value. And the people that had dry capital and were able to participate at those times, you know, made a ton of money over the coming decades. So, um, you know, I think that's one of Stam's legacies that if, if you know, anyone's interested in, in investing in real estate right now, his last words here were basically warnings that said, hey, we're we're, we're in a, inflection point in the market here things do not look good uh, on the buy side here and so it's probably pretty smart to sidestep this stuff and see if we actually get one of these mark to market repricings and if so keep your eyes open because then there could be some tremendous values there so that was sam's kind of parting advice on the real estate market 
at a more macro level, and this will be a good segue into your charts, and I'll come to you first, John. Um, you know, Sam said over the course of his long and very successful career, the best deals he ever made occurred occurred during periods where there was stress, right? Where there was uncertainty, where prices were coming down, where investors were nervous. Obviously, you can draw a lot of parallels to the you know the markets over the past year and a quarter so far. Um, but here's his parting quote, John, and I'll then I'll let you go through with your charts. Um, he said, I love to quote um, Bernard Baruch, who, as you know, survived the depression by selling out before the market crashed. His famous quote was, no one ever went broke making a profit. In the same manner, my focus has always been to the downside. My focus has always been how bad can it get? What are the variables that might change where I stand? So I focus on how bad it can get, what I can do to make it better, but always on the downside, because if I've protected the downside, I can survive the upside uh, if it gets good. So, um, uh, you know, what's so interesting about that quote, John, is uh, we're at a point right now where the macro data is pretty grim. <laughs> the trajectories are to the downside. There's a lot of uh, flashing lights and, and warning bells on our macro dashboard here. And yet, you know, coming into this year, the markets are, are up. And uh, we're coming off of a week here where uh, markets have been, you know, rising higher, and there's a lot of optimism around the whole AI trade and the the, the big stocks and those big sort of Fang stocks are continue to to power the market higher here. Uh, you know, some people were saying they were dead uh, at the the depths of last year, but they've come roaring back. Um, so we have this real disconnect right now between market sentiment and how how equities are trading versus what the big macro data is telling us. And so I, I just hear Sam's voice in my ear saying, look, remember, start by always protecting the downside, right? You know, uh, if, if you can avoid, you know, a big drawdown, then you can be there to participate in the good times. So it sounds like from the data that you've collected, and I'll let you explain it here to the viewing audience, uh, but the data is really causing you to, to ask Sam's question, which is, the downside risk seems, you know, potentially unacceptably high, too high to ignore. Uh, so why don't you walk us through the data and then maybe we can talk about what you guys are doing in your portfolio there at New Harbor to protect your client assets against downside. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Those are all really great anecdotal comments uh, regarding Sam. And, you know, I could distill a part of that into a simple concept that uh, you know, here you have legendary investor, expert real estate investor. I didn't realize he was selling net selling over the last seven, eight years but real estate prices continue to rise. That in the simple example is, uh, you know, success in investing isn't necessarily about selling at the very top. It's about um, taking a profit uh, uh, in, in an extreme market, even though it may very well go likely higher because those are oftentimes temporary rises beyond uh, extremities. Um, so so that's perfect. We've, we've been early, if you might say, in, in being bearish on the stock market for some time. But we think, and, and when you zoom out and look at the big cycle of things and valuations and things like that, um, we think that perspective will will say early um, was likely the best best move. So I'm gonna I'm gonna share some charts. You know, just to kind of preamble that, you know, the market has been very strong this year. But let's let's dive in below the surface a little bit. If you look at the broad indices, especially the Nasdaq and the S and P you know, cap weighted index. Um, they're up very healthy this year. and but what we see underneath the surface is a a dramatic dispersion. there's there's very there are very few stocks carrying these indices higher. and most of most of the strength has been 
with these large cap tech stocks. Uh, and I got a chart I'll show in, in just a moment here. But if you look more broadly, um, there, there has been very weak participation across many sectors and, and most stocks. Uh, we can go out and mine data there that, you know, X percent of the S&P 500 are actually down on the year. And it's not a small number. I forget what the actual number it is. Um, you know, the vast majority of the stocks are, are barely up. And and again, it's, it's just some small, you know, it's a small co cohort of largely large tech stocks that are trading on AI memes and all kinds of, you know, kind of uh, FOMO type things. Um, so I'm going to share a chart just showing um, uh, a, a percentage of the... Um, the um, S&P uh, or, or the, the, the uh, relationship between the um, information tech IT sector of the S&P relative to the broad S&P. And we'll see here in a moment that the, the levels are at levels not seen since the very tippity top, top of the tech bubble. So let me share my screen here. All right, so here this chart um, goes back to the tech bubble uh, in you know, the top in, in 2000 and it shows the uh, tech sector. Um, uh, as a, a ratio to the broad S&P was 0.65. Here we are again today, uh, basically just in, in a very vivid picture showing how how in, inordinately uh, weighty the tech tech sector, and these are this is largely swung by a very few stocks as we, we've just talked about, the Apples, the Microsofts, and, you know, the NVIDIAs and um, things like that, uh, really uh, having an inordinate sway on the broad indices. Look at the Russell 2000, for example. That's been a very dramatic laggard uh relative to this so it just it just speaks to the, the dispersion underneath the surface of the market and that's a classically unhealthy uh, uh unhealthy thing in um in uh in markets um you know, i thought thought maybe we can pivot to a little bit of the economic picture you know we are seeing i'm going to go to the next slide here um we are seeing a slowdown in leading economic uh indicator activity this is a chart that was put out by um uh Lizanne saunders of schwab and you can see, you know, we have had very dramatic slowdown in the leading economic economic indicators. And you know, you look at past um, similar falloffs. Uh, these kind of maroon, if that's the right color, those are prior recessionary periods. So, you know, classically, this is the kind of trajectory you see leading into a re recession. So, you know, perhaps it's the most off talked about recession in in modern history. But uh, you know, the data certainly uh, bears out. Um, you know what what uh, what we think is 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 a lot of recessionary signs on the horizon here, and that's ultimately we'll get into it later. Um, you know we think uh, a, a not a healthy thing for what ultimately is very very elevated valuations and uh, and profit margins uh, currently priced into the market. Yeah, and what's what's interesting about that chart, John, is um, if if somehow we avoid going into recession this year. It would be the first time in that data set, which went back what to the early 60s, uh, that we we wouldn't be in a recession at LEI indicators this low. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, you know quite telling, and you know there's always a this time is different temptation, but uh, usually that sentiment ends up coming back to to bite, and that's that's what causes bubbles and at the very heart of it. Okay, um, I, I know you just un screen shared there, John, but I might ask you to, to, to do it again, too, because you, ha you have a couple of other charts in here um, that I thought were sort of indicative of, of where we may be heading and where asset prices may be heading. Um, uh, you have one here that's um, uh, kind of comparing uh, the level of volatility 
that we've seen over the past? Yeah, exactly. That one right there. Um, and th this in some ways um, echoes a little bit of what uh, some of our past guests, uh, including Michael Cantro and I think Brent Johnson have been talking about in terms of like, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the market's going to move maybe violently sideways for a while. <laughs> Uh, but then given some of the other macro indicators we're saying, we're seeing, um, you know, the, the indicators that they are seeing suggest that when we've seen them before in history, uh, we, we don't have a, we don't, we have a landing. We don't get to avoid the landing and the landing's usually hard, not soft. Um, and, and that's a bit what this chart is talking to. So why don't you jump us off from here? Yeah, this is actually a chart that I, that I borrowed him from Kantrowitz's firm, uh, Piper. So I'm sure he, he's got his fingerprints all over this and, and, you know, it's a it's a, a bit of a illustration of what the future may hold. But uh, you know, certainly the, the the bond bear market, which was really a bear market for both uh, bonds and stocks in, in 2022, followed by the very sharp rebound uh, from October that we've seen through present uh, present day. Uh, you know, you might call it the pivot rally, as they you know, as the market kind of uh, started pricing some hopeism hope hopeism about a, a Fed pivot. Um, but you know, I think we we agree with the likely scenario here. We're, we're seeing uh, you know some technical bullish signals in in the market, but it's against this backdrop of really troubling uh, you know macroeconomic and and you know macro financial uh, data that we're looking at. So we agree that we're likely to see a kind of a volatile range bound market here, um, and you know. Uh, uh, we we would not at all be surprised to see some of the trends in the economic indicators and some of the the jobs deterioration start to to become more real and and uh, you know we're we're firmly in the hard landing camp not the soft landing or the no landing camp as 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 has been coined in recent months um, and we think that ultimately will be the, the head on crash collision to you know extremely elevated profit margins uh, corporate profit margins and and valuations. Okay, and in in because this is a Cantro chart, um, for those that are familiar with his hope framework, it's that progression for how we fall into recession. Um, pull, pull that chart just back up again for a second. Sorry about that. Because I, I want to point out um, that Michael sort of has it it, it chopping sideways there in that that volatility chart uh, box. And then he's got that milestone where it says claims start rising sharply, right? And that's when the hard landing starts. And, and Michael's hope framework, you know, basically says all the different dominoes fall in order, housing, orders, profits, and then employment. Um, and his note here is claims start rising sharply. So obviously watching initial and continuing claims is something he's doing very closely. Um, we have seen in last week, we saw a dramatic spike in initial claims. Interestingly, this week's initial claims numbers um, uh, sort of undid that spike. And there's talk that, oh, there was, uh, I think, some um, issues with the data for Massachusetts uh, that was published. And, and with the correction, you know, maybe things didn't spike as much as they thought initially a week ago. True or not, um, if you look at the trajectory of initial claims and continuing claims, they clearly bottomed out around September of last year and are on the rise here. And so, you know, Michael is basically saying, look, the trajectory is supportive of his chart that he outlined there. Um, you know, he's just not ready to, to say, yes, uh, unemployment's uh, really starting to, to weaken here. Um, he needs to see a bit more momentum first, but, but the trajectory 
is definitely heading in that direction. So at this point, it it it, it seems just like a matter of time. And he's sort of, you know, again, you know, watching this very closely to when it crosses whatever his key threshold is to worry about claims, he's going to say, okay, folks, this is it. It's game on. The timer's been set. And typically what tends to happen throughout historical cycles is once employment starts really weakening uh, uh, beyond a certain critical point, uh, the recession follows within just a couple of months. That's why Cantro's chart lays things out like that. All right, Mike, um, I know you pulled some charts together too that are related to what John's been talking about here. Why don't we come over to you and let you drive a little bit? All right, that's great. Yeah, my charts are pretty broad in perspective. They they talk about the macro situation in in the market, which is which is pretty bad. It's it's um, and it's been that way for a long time. We'll be the first to admit that really it's been this way a long time. You talked earlier about Sam Zell starting to sell real estate eight years ago. I mean, we've been in a bubble for more than eight years. I remember being at the New Orleans Investment Conference, I think it was four or five years ago now, and listening to Robert Kiyosaki talk. And he wasn't selling real estate, but he wasn't buying any new real estate. I don't know what he's been doing the last year or two, but even he five years ago was saying the real estate market was fully valued. And so we've been living in this bubble for a long, long time. And uh, there's no telling how long it will go on, but the signs are starting to mount that it's getting ever more dangerous. And so, you know, why has real estate not been a good investment for some time? I'm going to go ahead and share my screen now. Just give it one second. Here, here's the slide. So why, why are we in this massive bubble? This is one of the most widely looked at charts in the world. This is from the St. Louis Fed. This is the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. We went from uh, under $1 billion 20 years ago, and then we had the financial crisis in 2008. We went right to two and a half, I'm sorry, trillion, not billion. And then it just kind of increased from there. And then we had the COVID situation and we stand at right around nine trillion today. You talked earlier about mark to market accounting. The Fed does not mark to market assets on its balance sheet. Some estimates would say uh, and, and have said that the Fed probably is sitting on roughly one trillion or more in losses on the bonds it holds on its balance sheet. Because as interest rates went up uh, in 22, bond prices went down. The bond market saw one of its largest bear markets ever. And so there's probably one to one and a half trillion dollars in losses on the Fed balance sheet. Well, this is a mountain of liquidity. And it, you know, it's just created the reckless buying in all assets over the last 10 or even 15 years now. This is what's what economists call the the, uh, the liquidity preference curve, and it just shows Federal Reserve liabilities as a percentage of gross domestic product. Uh, and the y-axis is essentially interest rates, but it says three-month Treasury bill yield over and above interest rate on reserve balances because the Fed, the Federal Reserve, pays interest on excess reserves or IOER. Um, it's you know it's a large cost center for the Fed to pay interest on excess reserves on on the balance sheets of member banks, and where we are here is just in crazy crazy territory. So there's just been this mountain of liquidity, and it's been there for a long long time. It's pushed everything up, everything, and these these charts, this one and the, and the next one, is from. John Hussman, which we we often cite on this channel, 
He does great work. He's kind of a lone voice out there still saying, look at the data, everybody. The data is ridiculous. I know it hasn't mattered yet, but it will matter. This is a chart of valuation. There's many, many different ways to look at valuation. You could look at stock market cap to GDP, which is a pretty decent one. This one happens to be non-financial market cap divided by non-financial corporate gross value added. It happens to be one metric that's highly correlated to subsequent returns in the S&P 500 or, or other broad U.S. indexes. This one happens to be the S&P. And Mike, just to interrupt there, just to help people understand this, this basically, this chart is showing, uh, or this ratio that this chart is measuring, is the price you pay for the value that the company produces, roughly. And so, you know, when you're at these lofty levels like we are right now, it's a sign that you are paying very richly for the value the company uh, produces, and therefore you're you're much more likely to be overpaying, if you will. And obviously, when it troughs, like it did here in the late '70s and early '80s, that tends to be when when companies are selling at great values. You're 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 buying that value at a lower price ratio. Am I explaining this correctly? Absolutely. Quite simply, the return that you can expect to get over the 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 longer period of time, in this case, ten or fifteen years is directly correlated, is most strongly correlated to the price that you pay. That's true for housing. Uh, that's true for uh, for investments, uh, for sure. I mean, it's just a mathematical truism that you can calculate your expected return based on the price you pay. Now, there's lots of arguments on how you measure, measure price or valuation. What I like about John Hussman's work is he actually looks at different metrics and then run statistical analyses on them and sees what's most highly correlated with actual returns. We haven't, uh, this particular chart doesn't show actual returns in the past, but if that was overlaid here, you'd see that it's extremely highly correlated. So this is a really good metric to look at the S&P 500 and, and what it's currently trading at. This chart goes back to 1947. And you can see we had to blow off top here in, in 2021, which was just obscene. But even with last year's pullback, we're above the 1999 level. We're above previous bull market peaks. Uh, there's other charts out there that John does that shows we're above the 1929 peak. So valuations are extreme. But frankly, it's something that we've had to learn to live with since 1995, really. You know, we had a blow off top in the tech bubble that wasn't really allowed to fully correct. We had a low in 2002. Um, you know, we that was when we went to 0% interest rates. We created the housing bubble that tried to correct. That wasn't allowed to fully come back to undervalued. It, it essentially touched long term average value. And that's the only time in the last 25 years or so that there's even been a chance to buy uh, you know, average value, never mind undervaluation. We haven't had an undervalued market since the early 90s. And I know it feels like a permanently high plateau because the Fed and other central banks are omnipotent, but we think they're playing a dangerous game, pushing all this liquidity into the market. It's created just severe overvaluation in everything, and it better stay there forever because if it doesn't, a lot of things start to fall apart and a lot of pain ensues. And there's problems. There's there's second level effects with the, with these types of things. The next two charts shows, uh, or it tries to measure the effects uh, in uh, in wealth disparity. 
And these charts uh, are originally from the St. Louis Fed, but I pulled them off a recent piece that Charles Hughes Smith uh, put out. Charles Hughes Smith does some great writing. I highly recommend him. What I like about him is he doesn't pull any punches and he's not afraid to, to say exactly what he thinks, even if it's not popular. But this massive money printing has created a, just a, a huge historical transfer in wealth. This chart goes back 30 years or so. It, it shows the, the share of wealth that's held by the top 1%. And, you, and that's top 1% of people across this country. You can see that the top 1% has gone from owning about 23% of all wealth of total net worth in 1990 to owning roughly one third, about 32% today. When each of these bubbles have popped in the last 25 years or so, the share of the 1% has increased markedly. And conversely, yeah. oh, go ahead. Sorry, just, just, just two things about that. You know, when people hear 23 to 32 or 33, they think, oh, that's not that much, right? It's only like 10 points or whatever. It's, it's like a 45% increase, though. <laughs> it's a huge increase. Huge increase. And if you look at the growth in, in their percent uh, of wealth held um, starting around 2010 uh, up to now, the shape of that curve pretty much mirrors the shape of the Fed, the growth in the Fed balance sheet. Right. In other words, you know, the efforts that the Fed are taking to, quote unquote, support slash rescue the economy, most of the benefits of those efforts are ending up in the pockets of the top one percent here. It's true. And I'm sure that folks have heard it a, a million times by now. But this is exactly what's been happening over the last 15 years. And this is, I think, and I don't think this is the desirable effect. It, it consolidates wealth it consolidates power into fewer and fewer hands. This is, I think, the largest negative effect of all of this money printing that we've been living through. And well, I guess it's not negative if you're in the 1%, but it's it's negative for these people in the next slide. You know, this is in the 50th to the 90th percent wealth percentiles, you know, so this would be your average middle class. Um, so they've gone from about 37% of the wealth in, over the same period of time down to about 28%. And each time these bubbles pop, um, this class doesn't experience an increase in wealth, they experience a decrease in wealth. So in my opinion, that's not a great thing. And it, and it could very well lead to political and social problems in the future. I know we're talking big picture macro stuff here. But the Fed is engaging in stuff that is not necessarily good for everybody and creates a more unstable environment. And one, one thing just to note on here, too, Mike, is, um, you know, Charles is pointing out where the asset bubbles, the previous asset bubbles popped during those recessions. And you can see that the trajectory shifted um, you know, prior to the actual arrival of the recession and the 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 the, the worst of the damage of the bubble pop. Um, so, uh, you know, like especially if you look at at the years leading up to the the dot com bubble pop, there you can see that that the you know the the, the share of uh, this fifty to ninetieth percentile was beginning to grow again. And that's, of course, because the froth was coming out of those assets uh, and, and those assets were owned disproportionately by the top 1%. But you can see that that, that was rising for, for you know, a, a notable while 
before the real carnage of the bubble pop happened, the recession hit. Um, and I, I just to point that out, because if you look where we are right now, you're seeing that reversal of trajectory again, right? So that's largely due to the 20% plus, you know, losses in the market uh, last year. But this could be, if it if history rhymes here, this could be the precursor to the popping of the everything bubble here and the, the subsequent additional damage that would come along with that. Nobody knows for sure. I'm just pointing out the pattern here, though. So we should be watching this closely. I absolutely, I'd agree, particularly with the backdrop of the most overvalued market ever, save for the tippity top in 2021. Um, nobody knows what the catalyst is going to be, but there's a lot of reasons to be extremely cautious here. I'll All go right. ahead and stop this now. Okay. Um, now, John, uh, I want to go back to you because I know you have a couple of uh, supporting charts about um, the extremity of today's valuations. Uh, why don't you walk through those as you're pulling them up? Uh, I'll just note that, that Mike, you were talking about John Hussman's, John Hussman, and you showed a couple of his charts. One of his charts that we show up here a lot is a scatter plot chart, scatter plot chart, sorry, scatter plot chart, can't get that out of my mouth. Um, that uh, projects returns for the markets over the coming 12 years, I think. Um, and for the past bunch of years now, that that's projected a negative return. I believe it still is. Um, and again, that doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean the market's just going to be flat for the next 12 years. In fact, he, he I'm sure he projects it's going to be pretty volatile. But the overall net return, though, that he's still projecting for the next 12 years based upon today's high valuations is still negative. Uh, and that's just something that we need to keep in mind. John, uh, why don't you walk through your charts because I'm sure they're going to tell a similar story. Yeah, thank you, Adam. This is a great segue moving from some of John Hussman's great work, which we've admired and followed for a long time. And I'm pulling some charts here from a, a recent, uh, just recent within this week, uh, white paper by GMO, Grantham Mayo Van, Van Otterloo. And I was very thrilled to see that they, uh, they make reference to John Hussman's great work. So uh, and, and GMO has its own very um, storied, uh, uh, well-regarded uh, reputation in, in the industry. Um, and, and when we dive underneath the surface, these 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 massive overvaluations that we've seen and how how they sustained longer than perhaps any any time in, in modern history, one of the key underlying factors there is that corporate profit margins have been. Uh, really elevated, unsustained, well, uh, more, more, more dramatically so than ever in history. So this chart basically shows the percentage of corporate profit margins as a percent of gross national par, uh, product. And you can see basically over the last decade, um, right in this uh, area here, they've been very elevated. They've averaged, let's call it nine and a half percent. Going back over history, the average has been closer to 6%. That's a dramatic uh, difference and a step change that you know, it's, it's curious, right? And we, and we want to kind of step in and see, and, and that's certainly underlying uh, some of the, um, the valuation metrics that are very extreme that we've been looking at. And uh, GMO did some great work. Uh, let me pull the next chart up. This one basically de deconstructs that by uh, period, looking at the last decade and then the period uh, from 1950 through 2011. And one thing that jumps out here, a couple of things. Well, first of all, investment, uh, you know, productive investment has fallen off a cliff. You know, as a percent of GNP in the 50 to 2011 period, it was 8.6%. Over the last decade, not even 5%, uh, a, a really anemic uh, productive investment. Um, um, 
the other thing that really jumps out here is is uh, government's uh, savings, which a negative here means government deficits. You see a, a more than doubling of government deficits over the, the last decade as compared to the uh, 50 to 2011 period. And that can't be understated or overstated, I should say, as a uh, basically when government spending is in deficit mode, it basically transfers that 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 deficit in the form of a surplus to the consumers and the private economy. So a lot of the spending, consumer consumption and things like that has been deficit finance. And this is a very uh, obviously hot button item here today as we're um, watching the drama play out with respect to the, the debt ceiling and, and, you know, wrangling in Congress over that. Um, you know, profit margins, corporate profit margins have been historically one of the most reliably mean reverting data series in, in economics. And, and that simply means, you know, use a rubber band analogy. When things get stretched in either direction to, to an extremity, they have a very reliable tendency to snap back. Uh, the, the profit margins have been uh, anomalously high for, for a long period of time. And, and um, you know, you almost have to believe that the government deficits are going to continue uh, at the pace they have been to, for, for those uh, those profit margins to be sustained. We think, uh, and I think we're running crash course with the, with the debt ceiling debate and, and the, the knowledge that you can't kick this can forever. We think those ultimately come crashing down. Um, now, the key, key thing is um, if you look at some valuation metrics like traditional PEs, single year PEs, or even like the Schiller PE, which is much better metric than a single year PE, those don't really reflect the the distortions caused by uh, these elevated profit margins. If you if you again, uh, you know, adjust those or, or or normalize those for for the extreme profit margins, John Hussman did has done some seminal great work in this regard, and and GMO in their recent piece gives a nod to him and putting their own uh, chart out. Uh, it pretty much tells the same story that Mike just uh, sh uh, shown up there with that other valuation metric. We're, we're at levels never seen before outside of the tippity top of the tech bubble uh, and the 1929 peak before the Great Depression. In the last couple of years, the COVID spike in 2021 got us higher, but uh, that was just a more uh, extreme bubble than, than ever before. So right. really- hey, John, I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting with a really broad brush here, but looking at the column there from 2012 to 2021 and the differences from the, the other column, it, it, it sort of seems to tell a story that um, that profits and dividends are higher, right? Which investors love, right? <laughs> you, 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 you want higher profits and you want to get more of that as a share back in your dividends and the profits and your, your, your stock price is higher. Um, but that that's being engineered at the cost of investing much less in the system and in deficit spending to keep, uh, these good times rolling, right? So you use that term sort of kicking the can, right? That that's just not a, that's not a sustainable recipe here, right? We're basically kind of stealing prosperity from, from the future into today to make things look uh, excessively rosy on the, the stock price and the dividend side of things here. But at some point, those, those you just got to think mathematically, those chickens have to come home to roost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you look at the, the top two lines are basically what the private sector can do. Um, they can invest, you know, in, in productive plant and equipment and things like that, or, or distribute profits in the form of dividends. Some of those two lines are, are, are barely changed. Where, where the real growth and profit has come is by this uh, dramatic increase in, in deficit spending. Um, you know, that, that's really the, 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 the thing to tease out of this, this, this table. 
you know, the sum of these two first lines are roughly equivalent. Um, it's really this this increase in deficit spending. So yeah, the Fed has plenty of 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 uh, you know blood on their hands, and I hate to use that analogy uh, for for what's been engineered in this bu this bubble. But uh, equally, or maybe maybe not equally, but significantly, also we need to point to the deficit spending, the fiscal uh, uh, relentlessness of of the de deficit expansion over the last decade, and certainly that was on high display in the, in response to COVID in terms of right. It, and, it, it, and it's not like it's not like you know belt tightening mode uh, and and frugal frugality are going to be coming back into government spending anytime soon, as we can see from recent. You know the the sure you could make the excuse we had to do extraordinary stuff during the pandemic, uh, but we're still uh, deficit spending to a pretty big tune right now. And of course, as you said, you know we're you know, th this week's drama is, is all about what's happening with the debt ceiling so that we can continue <laughs> to deficit spend yeah. going forward. We got, we got two variables here. We got valuations that are more extreme than almost ever and profit margins that are more extreme than almost ever. It, it need only take one of those variables to kind of come off a little bit to, to you know, uh, lead way to, to significantly lower prices potentially in, in the stock market. If both of those come off, um, you know, doubly so. There's, there's, you know, every every bit the potential for uh, repricing to the downside. And, and okay. at the very least, the takeaway is that the prospective returns from these levels are going to be very anemic. And GMO came out with its latest uh, uh, seven-year asset class forecast. They've got negative returns uh, after inflation projected over the next seven years for for large and small U.S. cap stocks. Uh, the only area of the stock market that they see positive, likely real returns over the next seven years from these current levels is in, uh, in international, especially emerging market stocks. So uh, pretty, pretty nasty set of situations. So we need to, you know, look at the big picture to to put into context the, the short term signals that might flash bearish or bullish. It's it, to lose sight of, of that bigger picture. Uh, we think misses some of the lessons that folks like Sam Zell have have imparted on on you know, legions of investors over decades. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, le leading it back to Sam. So, you know, I've had a couple of people on the program recently who are bullish uh, about the future. Um, thinking of guys like Michael Howell, just had Dan Tapiero's video on yesterday. Um, so, uh, you know, those guys are saying, hey, look, um, you know, we, we think a new bull cycle has started. I won't go into all the reasons why, folks. If you're interested, go watch those two videos. I mean, they they they, they are great discussions, um, and I'm not necessarily saying they're right or they're wrong. But your job at New Harbor is to uh, steward client assets, uh, you know, through what's going on, and and hopefully grow those assets over time, and certainly try to protect them from from uh, loss. So you know, you guys have to you know have have. I guess no matter sort of what potential upside you think in the, it might be in the market, uh, you're looking at this data and I'm sure having Sam's voice ringing loudly in your ears of, okay, but first look at the downside, first protect against the downside. So what are you guys doing from a, uh, a portfolio allocation uh, right now in terms of trying to keep looking at all this data, what are you doing to protect downside risk in the portfolio right now? Uh, should uh, I answer that? Start with you, yeah. Adam. Okay, we haven't changed much lately. We're we're very con very concerned, and and I know that it's 
it's been a long time that we've been concerned. It's been a long time that it hasn't mattered. Valuations have been extreme. Each small dip in the market has been, uh, you know, uh, rescued pretty quickly. It's bounced very quickly. The October low, we got down to about 35.70, I think, on the S&P. We expected that the uh, the elevated drop would happen there down to below 3,200 or 3,200 or so, but it just hasn't. It's been a straight 45-degree rebound from the October low. And yet the, the breadth has been bad. The advanced decline line has been really bad. It's been bad for most of the last two years. You uh, recently had Katie Stockton on your program and she was pointing out um, you know, that she's bearish and, and she's looking, she's more risk off, mainly because of these technical indicators that I'm mentioning right now. And so we are, we've got a high percentage of cash equivalents still close to 50%. We're only about 5% or so net stocks. If you exclude gold stocks, which we think act differently than regular stocks. So um, you're getting paid 5% on short-term treasury bills. It's astounding to me that for over 10 years, we were talking about how there was no alternative because interest rates were at zero. That's why you had to buy stocks. Or that's what people were saying on financial television. But here, treasury bills are 5% or above on the short end. So there really is an alternative. And it's it's and this is at a time where I think the 10 to 12-year return, as you pointed out, John Hussman as a scatter plot earlier, um, is probably negative. His scatter plot these days, he just posted a new one, shows about a minus 2% return expected annually over the next 12 years from these levels. So uh, it's really um, it's really surprising to me, very surprising that the market is still hanging out where it is because the NASDAQ is up 25% year to date. The S&P is up 9% year to date, only down 13% from its all-time high. The volatility index or VIX is completely asleep at around 16. I know it reached down around 10 or 11 a bunch of years ago, but 16 on the VIX is an is a is a very high level of complacency, and so, you know some of your other guests recently have talked about some other uh, signs that are that are concerning. For instance, Lucky Lopez was just on your program. Uh, more repos are happening in the car market. We're starting to see credit freeze up in the car market. Well, autos is are one of the biggest expenditures that normal people um, you know encounter on a regular basis, and so. Um, you know, his message anyway was for people looking to buy cars, wait six to 12 months. Totally agree. So to sum it up, really caution is warranted in everything, in my opinion. Buying a new house, buying a new car, buying the stock market, we should see lower prices across the board. It's been very frustrating because it's been a long, long time that data hasn't mattered. But we continue to be very conservatively postured. Our model is up a little bit, low single digits, uh, approximately, on average in general, um, because we've had the wind at our backs a little bit with gold mining stocks, even though they're off recently, and we're actually getting a positive return on cash equivalents. And so our message to people is to raise cash, have very little stock market exposure. You're getting paid to wait. Why not wait? So that, that's that's how we're handling it. Okay, yeah. And on the paid to wait side, we've talked a lot about um, the, the really safe trade that's paying well right now, right? Which is, you know, treasuries and, and especially the short end of the curve, right? I mean, nothing safer than, you know, a three month T bill 
and those are paying over 5% right now. Um, I've been looking recently at, at preferred securities of a lot of like really big, really, um, you know, solid blue chip companies out there. They're paying like seven to 8% right now. And, and these are, they're not as safe as T-bills, but they're definitely much more further on that end of the curve than they are, you know, a lot of today's stocks and whatnot. Um, it just seems like, you know, there finally is an alternative here. And, and I, I got to tell you, when you can get seven or 8% uh, on a pretty darn safe feeling investment, um, it really does diminish your 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 appetite for going too much further on the risk curve because you're finally getting like a really good return uh, with a much better safety profile than you've been able to get for decades, really, uh, for the most part. Um, so, John, I'm just curious, does that is that factoring into your guys's portfolio management here where it's sort of like, look, forget about nickels in front of the steamroller. We got dollar bills that are sitting there in a bank vault like it's 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 it's, it's a trade we'll take all day long. It, it absolutely does, Adam. Um, you know, there is Mike already pointed out there. There is an alternative to buying into hyper overvalued stocks that are priced irrespective of what they do in the next week or month that are priced if history's any guide to, to deliver very pathetic returns over the next decade. Um, you know, Apple, not that we're recommending this, but I think Apple just issued a 40-year bond uh, at 4.9% um, coupon, right? We wouldn't recommend that. You know, we think there's going to be much better opportunities in stocks eventually. Uh, prices will likely pull off. And frankly, it may, may happen quite a bit sooner than anybody can imagine. Um, but we have little doubt that there'll be opportunities, again, to invest in good stocks, dividend paying stocks, growth stocks, value stocks at valuations that will yield, you know, durable multi-year returns and, uh, you know, certainly uh, high single digits to probably, probably low double digits, but not from these current valuations. Um, and, you know, preferred securities are, are, are class of assets. You know, we're not particularly bullish on them right now because they're essentially very, very, very long duration bonds without the same uh, creditor protection as, as bonds. So they're very sensitive to interest rate uh, fluctuations. Uh, the interest rate, interest rate picture, it, frankly, is a little bit um, conflated right now. Um, we had the, the Fed, uh, so both on the short and longer end of the, the, the curve. We had a couple of Fed governors, their president and governor come out today um, talking pretty hawkishly about uh, we haven't made enough progress yet. So the, the odds of a 25 basis point, 0.25% uh, hike at the June Fed meeting jumped this week to 40% chance from last week. It was about a 5% chance. So there's definitely some hawkish talk coming from the Fed still. Um, you know, I'm going to share a chart quickly of uh, 10-year Treasury yields because they they've spiked recently, and um, you know they're they're testing some some key levels here that um, you know we we may see some further weakness in, in bonds here and, and everything that's interest rate sensitive. So let me just pull up a chart here, and I'll show you what I'm talking about here. Okay, so this is a, this is a daily chart of the 10-year uh, Treasury yield. It's you know, off by decimal point. So you can see 3.36.42 is more like 3.642. Um, you can see here, let me move my little thing here. See here, we've we've been chopping around here. We hit, hit some lows here in, in April uh, around the 3.2 and change, but they've spiked up in the last week or so. So we're testing here right around uh, 3.65 here. And, and a breakout of that, you know, could could lead to, to more downside in bonds and, and pretty much everything interest rate sensitive. Um, so we're we're definitely not out of the, uh, in the in the open here. We have a, we do have a fairly modest allocation to longer term treasuries, um, 
about a 15% allocation meant to be more of a tactical uh, short to midterm trade. Um, we would not be recommending long-term treasuries or preferreds or anything like that for a, a long-term buy and hold, uh, especially when you're getting paid, you know, 5% or more on very, very short-term liquid stuff. All right. Though, if, if we did uh, see a resurge in yields there, would you see that as a buying opportunity? Um, yeah, yeah, we, we absolutely would. You know, even if it's just a, a tactical trade, um, you know, everything goes through cycles, long and short term, uh, the bond market included. And, and we, we, we probably would see as as our current position in longer term treasuries, that is a tactical trade based upon a, a still a pretty dramatic uh, pullback in yields from where they were um, a year or two ago. Um, we do think ultimately, uh, I mean, spike in yields. Um, so we do ultimately think there's there's some some tactical bullish trades here in 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 the you know fixed income or, or interest rate space. But way too early in our opinion to be loading up on on too much in in the uh, longer end of the curve. All right. Well, we'll be looking forward to your kind of color commentary on that as things progress here. Because um, I, you know, I ask because we've we've had a number of people on the program who say that. The peak in yields is likely behind us. And look, at some point here, the Fed is going to stop hiking. I mean, it's it's just seemingly a lot closer to the end of its hiking regime. And then at some point, it will start bringing rates down for whatever reasons. But of course, the people that are betting too, that something might break under these higher rates and, and force the Fed to scramble and bringing rates down. So the, the point is, is if you buy, you know, if, if especially if there's a, a, a short-term surge in yields, you're going to get paid those higher yields and and get paid nicely to wait to see how it all ends. And of course, if it does end with rates coming down or coming down aggressively, we've had some people like Alf Pecatiello who predicts we're going back to ZERP, um, then you could have some real upside price appreciation in those bonds in addition to the nice coupon you're getting paid. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we're not so um, much in the camp that the Fed's going to go back to zero unless something really dramatically happens, like the stock market gets cut in half <laughs> or or a pretty big move. So, uh, you know, that kind of scenario, we'd probably be buyers of stocks more so than, uh, than you know, jumping into bonds right now. Okay. All right. Well, look, um, we're going to have to wrap things up here. Um, gents, thanks so much for going through all this with me. Great charts this week. Um so uh, two quick things, uh, just folks, uh, remember that, uh, you know, if you're having trouble navigating a lot of these, you know, concerning macro trends that Mike and John have just laid out here so well for us and all this data, and you'd like a little bit of help uh, in figuring out how to navigate all this, which we think most people deserve to have, you know, the, the, to benefit from the help of a professional financial advisor who gets all this stuff. Uh, because most people, you know, we get it. You know, you've got your life that you've got to focus on. You've got, you know, your family to raise. You've got your job to go to. A lot of this stuff can be really daunting. And of course, um, there's a lot of things happening in real time that are kind of changing, you know, the play on the game at any any one particular moment in time. So look, if you've got a good financial advisor who is being that good guide for you, who is taking all this stuff into account, great. They're worth their weight in gold. You should stick with them. If you don't have one, though, or you'd like a second opinion from one who does, maybe even John and Mike themselves and their team there at New Harbor, well, then consider scheduling a free consultation with them. It doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with them. They just offer it as a free public service. To schedule one of those free consultations, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there. Only takes you a couple of seconds. All right, guys, as we wrap up this week, um, Mike, I'll let you have the last word here. I know you guys, because I see the volumes, 
You've had a lot of people reaching out to you recently from the Wealthy on audience for these consultations and just to ask a lot of general questions. Anybody parting advice uh, to viewers here based upon the questions, the concerns that people are reaching out to you with? Yeah, thank you, Adam. We do have the pleasure and the privilege of talking to a lot of new people every day, every week. And it's in no small part because of all the hard work that you've been putting in, Adam, and building such a great channel with great content. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you to all the listeners and viewers that uh, do reach out to us through the WealthyOn.com website. Uh, we enjoy every single conversation and we, we talk to some really cool people. Uh, I think people are just concerned. They, they're, they're frustrated. It doesn't make sense. They watch this program. They read a lot of other things. They know valuations are, are crazy. They know in their heart or hearts that it's not normal that real estate prices double the last few years, for instance. And they remember what happened last time in 2008 in the housing crisis, and they're afraid of something like that happening again. Well, history never repeats, it often rhymes. And from these levels of macro extremes and valuations and historic intervention with, you know, funny money to some extent, it's, it's right to be concerned. Don't be afraid, but be concerned and, and, and talk with us. We're happy to help you. Um, just think through what you want to do next. I, I had a conversation recently with somebody that was considering a career change, a major career change, and they were going to maybe sell assets and do something different. We, we have talks like that all the time um, where it's part psychology and, 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 and part mathematics and part investment knowledge. Part and life I coach, think, it sounds like, in addition to money coach, life coach too. Yeah, Absolutely, because we've got a unique perspective of how this fits into the big picture. And we've been around a long time. We've been doing this a long time. We've talked to a lot of people. And I think we can connect uniquely with no obligation. And sometimes just in a 30-minute conversation, we might make, make a suggestion or confirm what they already think that they wanted to do. And um, I think that people feel like they, they get a real unbiased opinion. And so we love doing it. We feel privileged to do it. And thank you very much. Yeah, that's a great point. Which maybe, maybe in one of these future videos, we'll we'll delve into more deeply when we have the time. But um, you know, people think about a financial advisor. Yeah, that's the guy I talk about. You know, when I want to find out what to do with my money in stocks and bonds. But that's the that's the what, right? Um, the huge part about working with a financial advisor is the why, right? And this speaks to the whole mission why we we founded Wealthion in the first place, which was to help people fund their life goals, right? That's why this channel focuses on wealth building, not just to have a bunch of money, it's to be able to do the things in life that you wanna be able to do. And so, um, you know, a financial advisor is, as you've said, Mike, you're oftentimes kind of a therapist and a life coach, meaning like, hey, these are life goals that I have, how can I fund them based upon my current situation? You know, do I need to put more in before I can go do this? Or wow, am I ahead of schedule? And can I now actually take this risk or this career shift or this life change that I've been dreaming of taking? Um, what can we do to maybe, you know, accelerate my way, uh, you know, towards that goal if I've got these different options ahead of me? So my point here is, is that, you know, there are a lot of discussions when you have a good financial advisor, there are a lot of discussions that you, you may actually almost want to start with your financial advisor to say, hey, how can we get the money part giving me wind at my back towards hitting this goal versus, you know, being some sort of, you know, uh, challenge or obstacle that I'm, I'm, I'm having to, you know, 
grind my way towards or whatever. And, and, and Mike and John, I know you guys do this all the time. I see you nodding as I'm saying this, but that's a key part of what you do, right? Just to really sort of help people think through how to engineer their life so that the money part isn't the obstacle. It's actually the catalyst for success. Mike, you're nodding here. Yeah, it's it's absolutely the truth. Um, this conversation I just mentioned, uh, it, it was it's true. It's about aligning those assets to provide the wind at your back. A lot of times people have already been successful. They've already won the game, I like to say. You know, you already won the game. And we can we can help them think through how to position those assets, how to be less anxious about it. And 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 these clients don't always come to work with us here at New Harbor. Oftentimes we just give them the push that they need to continue on what they already knew that they needed to do. They were already on the right path. And they view your program, I think they view New Harbor by extension as being uh, an unbiased opinion that they can trust. And, you know, people that see things similarly to how they see them with a skeptical eye and realizing that we're in very, very rare times, we're probably approaching the climax of a fourth turning for people that don't know what that is. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a difficult and risky time. Uh, in in market cycles or in historical cycles, so a lot of crazy things probably will happen over the next handful of years, and uh, life goes by quickly. And some people just want to think about how to realign themselves so that they can enjoy their life and and maybe not worry about money as much, or maybe not have to work as much. And so those are the types of conversations that we have. We don't have any magic bullet per se. But I do think we have some pretty unique perspective and experience on this. Well, you've got you've got seasoned context, and I'm guessing that um, you know you have examples where people are saying, "Oh, I want to be able to do this," and you may have to give the tough love and say, "Hey, look, <laughs> you're just not there yet, buddy. You got to change your behavior. Maybe you're spending too much. Maybe you're not saving enough. But let's come up with a plan to get you there." And vice versa, you may also have people who, to your point, Mike, have have, have won the game or they've crossed the finish line. But they're so focused on the behavior that got them there, the frugal living, the savings, the sacrificing, whatnot, that they're they're still so entrenched in that they don't realize that they've passed the finish line and that you can, you know, part of your job is to say, hey, you know what, like you can take some of that money and you can buy that vacation house or you can you can, you know, now semi-retire or whatever, right? Where, you know, you're basically helping people understand that, hey, you know. You've maybe got more options than your current, you know, tunnel vision after decades of of focusing on, you know, those core behaviors. You, you've got the opportunity to loosen up and enjoy life a little bit. So super interesting. Um, all right, I got to wrap things up here, folks. Um, real quick, um, we do these monthly live Q and A's with our advisors. We get John and Mike. We get Lance. Uh, from uh, Real Investment Advisors. We're now going to have Jonathan Wellam for Canadians, uh, who'll be participating as well. Um, we are planning to hold our next one uh, this coming Monday, uh, so keep your eye out on the, our YouTube channel. Um, but that should happen at the regular 8 a.m. Uh, sorry, 11 a.m. Uh, Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, and so, if you've got questions you want to ask our advisors live, make sure you tune in for that. All right, guys, John and Mike, thanks so much for another great week. Uh, we ended up having a lot of material here. Uh, I think we should all go, including our viewers as well, uh, and go raise a glass to the great Sam Zell after this video ends. Folks, if you enjoyed this conversation, the great charts and the great uh, conversation that Mike uh, and John brought to today's video, 
please do me a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And whatever the markets do over the next week, we'll have John and Mike back here making sense of it for us all. Guys, thanks so much. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Thank you, Adam. We'll see you and hopefully uh, plenty of other viewers on Monday for the live Q&A. And thank you, Adam. We'll see you soon. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. And because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we've put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA. But for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right. With all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.